Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFace podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 211, and today's guest is Carol Myers, venture partner, board member, and CMO. When you think of the greatest athletes like Serena Williams or Tom Brady, you are in awe of their success and the number of championships that they have won. In the business world, success is often measured by an exit, either an acquisition or an IPO, and one could also argue that the IPO is many times the harder hill to climb. Well, when you look at Carol's track record, it is extraordinary. She has been part of four companies, yes, four, that have all gone public. Shiva Corporation, Unica, LogMeIn, and Rapid7. In addition to her success as an executive, Carol has also made a major impact as a member of the board of directors at several startups and as an advisor to many entrepreneurs. And on top of all this, Carol recently joined Glasswing Ventures as a venture partner. Needless to say, we had a lot to talk about. Not only about all the stories from her professional career, but it was an exciting opportunity to do a deep dive into the world of marketing. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like advice on how to build your personal brand, Carol's background growing up and how she pivoted her career from finance to sales to marketing, her professional journey, including lots of great stories from scaling companies, how marketing has evolved through the years, and her thoughts on the current state of B2B marketing, lots of great advice on how to hire marketers and how to shape your own career path to a CMO position, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, if you have been enjoying the VentureFizz podcast, then please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. The more reviews we have, the more that people will discover these amazing stories about entrepreneurs, executives, and investors across the entrepreneurial ecosystem. Thanks in advance. We appreciate all of your support. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Carol. Carol, thanks so much for joining us. I am glad to be here, Keith. Thanks for having me. Oh, we've got so much to talk about. So this could probably be an eight hour or more long type <laughs> of podcast interview because there's so much that you've accomplished throughout your career, which you know, I'm so excited to talk to you because, I mean, you're like the, the Tom Brady or Serena Williams of the tech industry. You've had four IPOs, so many great success stories. So we're going to cover a lot of that. But um, to kick things off, I wanted to talk about personal branding. And you would think that's just comes natural for marketers, but it doesn't always. And just people in general, like, um, you know, building your personal brand is such an important piece of your career. So what, um, you know, what advice would you give to others around building out that visible profile and that, you know, ability to showcase your, yourself as a leader and, and, you know, building that strong personal brand? Yeah, Keith, it's very interesting. I I would say that I've never been highly intentional about it. I never thought about myself as building my own brand. Um, but when I think about it, I really, I guess, try to do the same things I recommend for companies to do, you know, when they're trying to build their brand. And so first is trying to get really clear about who you are. You know, what are your strengths? What are you really good at? What do you care about? Um, what are your values? I think that's really important. And you do the same thing when you're a company. Once you're there, you got to make sure you stay true to those values and value proposition, which isn't to say you don't occasionally make a mistake or a misstep, totally fine. But basically being who you are, being true to that and living that every day, I think is really important, which comes down to the third thing, um, which is all about being consistent in your words and your actions, because the truth of the matter is we can make any claims we want about ourselves, but if that's not what people experience when they interact with us, then you're not really building your brand. So I think it's an old adage and it's just very true that a 
company's brand is in the mind of its customers. And I think a person's brand is often what the people around you who interact with you experience from you. And that's how you build your, your brand. Um, and I think that's what's really important. So whether you use social media or you don't, still making sure that you are true to your brand um, is how I think it gets built over time. And how do you decide about you know speaking opportunities? Because obviously you're very visible. I'm sure you get asked a lot of to do podcasts or to you know do events. And you know, so how do you decide which ones to uh, to take on? Uh, well, um, a lot of it has to do with who's asking. <laughs> you, know, mm-hmm. you know, in your case, I'm like, yes, of course, I will do this. <laughs> um, I love what Venture Fizz does, and I and I love what you do. So uh, that's number one. Is like, who who is it? Who's it for? And do I think that it is um, consistent with sort of where I can add value. So sometimes I'll say to people, you know, I don't really know too much about that. Tell me about your audience. Like, why do you think I'm a good fit for this audience? Because I always want to make sure I'm adding value and talking to people who maybe I have something worthwhile to share with. I actually avoid speaking engagements, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love doing podcasts. Uh, I'll do ask me anything sessions and stuff like that. But I tend to avoid speaking engagements if at all possible. Got it. Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's rewind the clock. So where'd you grow up? What were you like as a child? Ooh, this is very deep, deep stuff. Um, yeah. So I grew up in the Northeast of the U S and my family moved around a lot, not because we were running from the law, but because <laughs> my father, you know, back in that day worked for a large company and the way you progressed through these large companies is you moved when you were going to get promoted, they moved you to a new location. So I went to four different elementary schools, two different high schools, um, lived not not that far geographically, but three different states. Um, and that was sort of my life as a kid, middle-class life, grew up with eight brothers and sisters, which eight? people generally find kind of interesting. Yes, yeah, so there were nine of us. Yeah. Wow. So very, that was a large family to trek, uh, you know, across all these different locations for sure that made and it where were you in the in the like the age spectrum i am number five so i'm smack uh, in the middle i have four older and four younger right yeah. okay now did you get started in like finance and accounting is is kind of what, like which I, I never knew that about your background <laughs> I did. Yeah. So I studied finance and because my father worked for a big company, I thought that's what I should go do. So I went to work for at a big company, GE, uh, which recently moved to Boston, as we all know. And I was an auditor there. So I went through something they have called the financial management program. And I was an auditor at GE. So that's how I got my start. <laughs> but, and how, long, um, how long were you doing yeah. that before you transferred into the tech industry? And how did that evolution happen? Yeah, so I only did that for about four years. And it happened because some of the people I was working with at GE went to a software company, was very renowned at the time in Cambridge called Lotus Development Corp, which actually made the first spreadsheet. Mm-hmm. Although there's debate about that, but the first spreadsheet. And um, well, the, they called probably me the said, widely hey. known spreadsheet that most like I use Lotus one, two, three back in the day. So it was probably the one yes. that got mass distribution. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, and, it, you know, it was amazing. I thought it was the most amazing thing. And that's really why I joined. So my friends called me and said, you should come over and work here. And I looked at they were what they were doing. And I was in finance. So I thought the spreadsheet was going to revolutionize finance. And it did. <laughs> so I went and joined them. And I was the financial planning and analysis person for the SVP of sales, marketing, and, and service. 
Uh, so all the go-to-market functions. And that's how I ended up switching over into sales and marketing. You know, at some point I said to one of my bosses, I don't really want to analyze this stuff anymore. I want to do it. So right. <laughs> he gave me a chance and that's how I made the switch. Well, it's fascinating to hear your story too, because uh, Peter McKay was on the podcast recently and he's CEO of Sneak and he's had many successful uh, exits as well. And he started out as a controller too for a larger company. So it just seems like if people, you know, the people that are listening to this, that career transition of, you know, you, you start off down one path and you can deviate to do something, you know, in a completely different path. So you don't have to, it's not a linear line of your career. So, and there's just so much great alumni from Lotus. I mean, it's just, and that could be, um, you know, that should be like a, a documentary of, of that company and what they accomplished. It's, it's really amazing. So, um, so what did you do after that, after Lotus? Well, some of uh, those folks left Lotus, different people, different set of friends that I made at Lotus, and they went to a small startup called Shiva, um, which was doing remote access. And so now that I had made the switch into sales and marketing, I was traveling a lot. And I thought remote access, that's going to revolutionize the business world. You know, we can work from anywhere, which of course we take totally for granted now. Um, and I wanted to be a part of that. So I joined them over there in the sales organization and um, worked with such great people there. Just talked to one of them last week again, and ultimately ended up being the VP of sales there, which was Nothing I had ever thought I would do in my life. You know, it just wasn't a career path I had thought about. Right. But when you were on that path, like how did, how did you get to a leadership role? Like how did, like what were the foundational pieces that got you there? Yeah, you know, it's very interesting, Keith, because it's not what I would recommend to people. Sometimes when I was asked to take a new role, a leadership role, I'd say, uh, I, don't, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't know if I want to do that. And then you know, people would just keep bugging me and say, well, why don't you take this role? We really want you to take this role. And then I would take the role and love it. Um, so I think it was that I, you know, I always say to people, I was always curious about how the business ran, why people did the things they did, the strategy, um, and was always sort of um, sharing my point of view <laughs> about, you know, the strategy. And I think I also became, you know, the truth is, this is something you sometimes try to avoid as a label, but it's true. I developed a reputation or a brand for being very good at executing things, you know, just whatever it was, <laughs> you know, even as the VP of sales running a product launch, which was usually a, you know, a marketing function, they'd be like, hey, can you go run this, this product launch? Or when Shiva ultimately got acquired by Intel, um, they asked me to step in and run the integrations. So I was the integration leader for getting the two companies fully integrated, landing everybody in new jobs and all of that good stuff. So I think that ability to just make stuff happen really helped me. And then off to, uh, to another success story. So Unica, which was a early like marketing automation platform, right? Is my memory correct? Yeah, exactly. So uh, Unica, I was introduced to by someone I worked with at Lotus and Shiva. He was um, working with one of the people who was thinking about investing in Unica. And I met them and I saw the analytics that they had. And as you'll guess, I said, this is going to revolutionize marketing. <laughs> we'll suddenly be able to be much more analytical and targeted in what we do. <laughs> yeah. So they really didn't have, they hadn't actually launched their um, marketing automation 
platform yet. So I joined right as the company was doing that. There were maybe 20 of us there. We hadn't even quite taken our venture funding and was coming off of a VP of sales role. And as I like to say, I must have been somewhat decent at selling because I convinced the founder of uh, Unica to let me be the VP of marketing. So <laughs> I, uh, I joined so them in the marketing. Without marketing experience or were you doing some of that at Shiva too? I really didn't have a ton of marketing experience. I was a product marketer maybe for a year at Lotus. Um, and I did some channel marketing when I was at Shiva, but I really didn't do a lot of marketing before I took that role. And, uh, you know, sometimes I say, I don't know what I was thinking, but I did it. <laughs> I wanted to do it. You know, I was like, I really want to do this. I I enjoyed working with uh, my partners when I was a VP of sales, working with the, with the marketing leaders and asking them about what they were doing and why they were doing it. And I thought, I think I'd like to go do that. So from there, you started to build a company that scaled and, and did go public. So, so yes. what, what was that journey like of, you know, scaling a marketing organization for a, you know, software that was sold to marketers? That was fun. I mean, I, I think that I always say to people when they go to HubSpot, I'm like, if you're a marketer, I mean, you want to go to HubSpot, right? Mm -hmm. um, because you get to market to your own people, which is a lot of fun. It was a little different for me because Unica was not SaaS software at the time. And about a million dollars was our average first year contract value. Mm -hmm. We sold primarily to very large business to consumer marketers. So I'd always been a B2B marketer. So that was a lot of fun because I joined different groups like the American um, or the Association of National Advertisers, you know, where I got to sit down with the head of marketing for P&G and all these other companies um, and get to learn about a different, you know, a different style of marketing and what was different about B2C versus B2B and the fascinating things they were able to do in terms of measuring their brand mm -hmm. and the impact of advertising, which I think we still struggle with a little bit in the, the B2B world. So it was, it was fantastic. I loved it. And I loved doing the IPO. That was my second IPO. We IPO'd when I was at Chiba. Mm -hmm. um, and it was amazing and fantastic. And then I, you know, had to go do it some more. <laughs> <laughs> so off to log me in, which is, uh, you know, another great, you know, anchor company here in the tech scene. Um, so, so where, where was the business when you joined? Uh, maybe 25 million or so. Um, and I knew they were going to go for an IPO. And I think they're what attracted me to like me. And that was an interesting one because I, I turned it down the first time I talked with them. And then I really thought about it. And I thought, oh, the business model was fascinating to me. They were one of the early pioneers of what today is called product-led growth. At the time, it was called yeah. freemium, if we yep. can kind of remember a decade ago. Um, and so I thought that would be really fascinating to learn. And it was. It was sort of a master lesson in, um, in analytics and marketing, a different kind of analytics than maybe we were doing with, with Unica, with this very high volume. So I went from a million-dollar ACV to our average contract for the first year was $328. Wow. Okay. <laughs> and I think like log me in, like you just uh, mentioned, like doesn't get a lot of credit for being one of the first product led growth companies because rescue, right. Was the, one of the top performing paid apps in the app store in the early days of the app store. Right. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, the first, so the first app we put out was sort of more, um, 
more of the, you know, what's called the log me in pro in an app form. And um, I cannot take credit for the pricing. You know, the CEO really pushed for a high pricing, which was like, no one was charging money for apps. But we, you know, we went out and we really marketed the thing and we ended up being the top business productivity app in the app store uh, pretty quickly. And it was, it was great. We had some great stories that people told about using the app to help someone else with their computer. You know, that person was in the air (laughs) and someone needed help with their computer and they were able to connect with them and help them with their computer. It was kind of amazing and a lot of fun. Yeah. And then join me was an awesome product. Like I used, I used to use that all the time to do demos of venture fizz and onboarding customers. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that whole market of, you know, using zoom today, it's an amazing, it's been amazing. You know, you always thought that market was sewn up. Oh, there's got a meeting. Oh, there's, you know, uh, join me. Oh, there's already uh, the Cisco product WebEx. Right. And here comes Zoom out of nowhere. So we're we're never done in tech. You can never say a market's completely solved. It's so true. So true. So another IPO. And then, okay, we go off to do another company, Rapid7. Yeah. Yeah. I And I, um, I had a friend who kept trying to get me to go to cybersecurity companies. And I would say, oh, I'm never going to do cybersecurity. <laughs> but I had met Mike Chukin, who was the CEO at the time, right around the time I had just decided to go to log me in. Um, and so I said, oh, I just took something, you know, so I can't, um, I can't come work at Rapid7. And then he reached out to me again. And I took another look and I met Corey and just fell in love with the culture, to be honest with you. I remember sitting, we were in the Peru at the time, sitting in the reception area and just feeling the energy and the number of people who stopped by to say, hi, I'm, you know, Jerry, um, do you have everything you need? And I thought, this is amazing. I think I'd like to be a part of this. Yeah. I I love their mascot, Moose, because it's (laughs) singular and plural. And it just is, it's a great way to explain their culture. It's just such a great company. Yeah. And it's amazing to see how the cybersecurity industry has just blossomed in in the Boston area with so many great anchor tech companies like Rapid7 and so many others. Yeah, and I feel really passionate about that. In fact, um, the year before I left, I was working with uh, the governor has a special commission and we were trying to create a cybersecurity week because I thought, well, you just need to get more companies to come to Boston and make this their headquarters, whether they start here or they start in Tel Aviv, they got to put their U.S. headquarters here because it's just such a great hub for that. And um, and Rapid7 has been through so much and grown so much, and it's now a place where everyone's trying to steal people from, unfortunately. <laughs> That's when you know you've built a great company. Yes, exactly. When people are like, I want the people from that company, you have a great great company. I used to tell my marketing team, you know, besides the mission for the company, my mission was to build such a great marketing team that every one of them would be getting calls from headhunters saying, we want you to come work for us. But they'd be so happy with where, you know, where we were that they would turn those calls away. (laughs) So how did you make these decisions? Like, you know, you talked about the different areas of technology and you talked about, you know, cybersecurity originally wasn't of interest. So how did you, like, what were the key elements that made you decide that this is a place where I think I have the opportunity to have another success, you know, story? Right. There's really always been three things. You know, one is I do look at the market. Is it a good market? Do I think, and I'm an IPO person. So there are a lot of companies that I think could do well and get 
acquired by somebody. So I'm always trying to assess how big's the TAM, as we like to say, or the serviceable market, as they now uh, they now say, um, to say can this can this be a public company? So that's number one. And then two, it's all about the people. I really. Once I meet the people and I understand the culture and what they're driving for, it's a big part of, I'm going to throw everything I've got into this company. And so I want to do it with people who feel the same um, that I can really count on and are going to be really fun to work with. So that's number two. And then number three, because I usually go to um, venture back companies in the hopes of taking them for an IPO. I look at the investors Mm -hmm. and the quality of the investors and what value they can add and also how um, willing they're going to be to stick by the company. Cause almost every company goes through bumps and turns. And so you want investors who really believe in the vision and are going to have the resources and the wherewithal to keep backing the company through all good times and maybe not such good times. Although I haven't had too many, not good times. So it's been okay. Yeah. But you did look at each opportunity almost as if you were an outside investor, right? Like, you know, the people, yes. the market opportunity, you know, who else is involved, you know, because the, the investors, like you said, it's, that's an important part of the equation. If they're an investment, if they're a VC firm that shows the patience to weather through different markets and they're going for the massive return, not the quick hit, um, you know, that's, that's obviously the right wagon to, to hook onto. Yeah. And I have to, I have to feel like, I care about the product and I think it really adds value. There's lots of things that are fantastic, but they just don't fit for me because I think I don't really think I understand the buyer or, you know, I, I just don't think I'll have fun, you know, marketing and selling that. I want to have a product I can really believe in and sink my teeth into. And well, so what was that experience like, you know, going public all these different times? Like finally, you know, it's, it's, it is a milestone in the company. It's not the end of the road. It's a milestone, but it's a huge milestone, of course. So what, what was that like finally hitting that, you know, that final milestone? You know, it's fantastic. And the thing that's been interesting is because I've kind of done this over my career, each one's been different. Um, and also the regulatory environment's been different to be completely honest. The first one I did, I think the regulatory environment was a little bit lighter. Um, I, you know, I remember annual reports were an enormous marketing undertaking. You know, we would put all kinds of effort into making these amazingly beautiful annual reports. Of course, people don't really do that anymore. Um, and then Unica was not that long after Sarbanes-Oxley, so it was much more subdued. I actually had to take any and all case studies that had any numbers in them off our website. <laughs> we weren't allowed. We weren't allowed to make any claims like that. I was like, "Oh my gosh, you have to be kidding me!" Like that's you know that's a key thing for uh, marketers to have available. And then uh, and then log we log me in. It had tempered a little bit. We had some of that. Um, uh, so, so that was fun. Rabbit Seven really was the most fun. And I think the reason it was the most fun, so this is advice I would give to other CEOs, was Corey made it very inclusive. He took as many people as he possibly could. Like we would have loved to take the whole company, but you couldn't. Mm-hmm. But he took as many people as he possibly could down to New York to be there. Yeah. for that day and for the ringing of the bell. So people who had been with the company forever, right? So you're like, hey, these people have really been here. People who worked hard on the 
S1 and putting together all the financial reports. And so good, a huge cross section of the company. And that made it, and we then we made sure that every part, every office had a great party as well. And they could watch <laughs> the whole proceedings and yeah. learn about like what happens behind the scenes because they were able to see us on the that's not the floor, but you know, where where's where the magic's happening. Mm-hmm. And um it was fantastic. And I think that. Um, that's a good way to say, well, this isn't the end of anything. We're celebrating a new beginning. Like yeah. we're going into a new phase of the company and it's a good recognition that you don't get there unless you have a great team and it's the team that really made it happen. It's not like the five people at the top of the company. It's this team that brought the company to this point of this um, terrific rite of passage, you might call it. Yeah, no, I agree. You got to have it you know, be a big celebration and I can't wait until, you know, companies can be there ringing the bell and, you know, having a larger group again, because now it's just like you see like three people with masks on. And it's just a different experience <laughs> with the pandemic. I can't wait to move beyond it and get into, you know, having a big platform of people celebrating. So, all right, well, let's talk about marketing. Marketing's Ooh, constantly okay. evolving. <laughs> so what's <laughs> what's the current landscape of marketing today for like B2B companies, like how has it evolved through the through the years and where is it today? Yeah, good question. Uh, so many changes, but if I boil it down, maybe three, maybe three would be the ones I would focus on. One would be, I think that B2B marketing has come to realize, and it may sound very silly, but it didn't always wasn't always this way, that it's not a hundred percent rational economic only process, you know, <laughs> where a company goes through an ROI calculation. But that the truth is we're all just people marketing and selling to other people. And those people who are making decisions about what to buy for their company are coming with all of the same emotions, hopes, fears, biases, aspirations, as they do when they purchase something personally. So the net of it is that brand, which we were talking about earlier, does matter. Like you really, you have to think about your building your brand and you have to think about not just the ROI of buying your solution, but what are the other emotional things that go along with buying this product and how do you mitigate them? For example, it can be, if it's a big purchase, people can worry about their reputation if it goes wrong, right? So so I think there's a lot to that. And I think B2B marketing has really come to realize that you see it a lot more in how people are going to market. The second is just analytics everywhere. And by that, I don't mean just measuring, you know, or the funnel or anything like that. But I think that market B2B marketing has become much more technology and data-driven. And the really great teams, I see some really interesting things that people are doing, are not just analysts anymore, but now there's a lot of code writing in marketing. And I don't mean HTML code writing, I mean Python scripts and all kinds of things that the teams are using to really greatly increase the science of marketing, to connect their systems in interesting ways, to um, apply data science to to what they're doing in a B2B marketing sense. And so I think that has ratcheted up tremendously. And then lastly, I think um, marketers now realize that they can't just focus on MQLs and lead generation. (laughs) They have to really go beyond that. They have to take ownership for um, revenue but not just revenue and getting new customers in the door, but thinking about the role of marketing, the role of brand um, in the entire life cycle of the customer. So how are we retaining them? How are we increasing their value? So those three things I think have really changed dramatically in the last decade, honestly. 
Do you think there's a sometimes over measurement, like trying to track every point back to ROI and just. Yeah, I do. <laughs> I do. I mean, I, as much as I say, Oh, it's really measurable. Um, it's getting better, but there are things that are, that are tough. Some of the brand building that you should be doing and it's worth doing isn't necessarily going to tie directly to ROI. I think there's signposts you can look for on whether or not it's working. Like, are people repeating your messages? You know, are more people coming to your website? Is it easier to attract employees to your company? That tells you a lot about whether the stuff you're doing is is having impact, but it's not necessarily something, you know, scientifically or like, we brought in a dollar of revenue, you know, for that. And, and sometimes people talk about that. The other thing that happens in B2B marketing that isn't great is there's too much, um, emphasis on the origin of <laughs> of getting connected with the customer and attribution and credit you know between sales and marketing and it just is wasted time and effort and I don't think it really helps things you do want to measure because you want to know what's working and you want to do more of that less of things that aren't but the journey's kind of long and it's really one thing that uh, turns someone into a customer especially in a b2b world right it might be you might come to talk with us at a good old fashioned trade show and not buy for 18 months still. I mean, it's kind of amazing, right? So, so it's kind of silly to say it all started with that trade show <laughs> or that it was all down to the seller's skill. Both of those things, you know, had some weight in the, in the scenario. So I agree with you. It's not quite that cut and dried yet. So a common theme that I always hear is, um, you know, you should always, you know, know your customer, like what are their pain points yet? Why does that keep coming up? Like, isn't that, so shouldn't that just be assumed? But for, for some reason, like either founders aren't spending time talking to the customers, understanding the pain points that they're trying to solve or marketers or sales. Like, why is it that different functions struggle with that knowing your customer piece? Yeah, it is, it is hard. And I think even if we start to have an ideal customer profile, not all buyers are the same, right? But it is hard because I think we often fall in love with our own ideas, <laughs> whether that's messaging or products. And we often think, well, everyone else is going to think like me. This is how I would react. I like this. So wouldn't everyone like this? And so I think because we feel time pressed, we want to get to market, we often use a focus group of one or maybe five. <laughs> and um, we just don't really uh, open our mind to the fact that someone else might view things a little bit differently than we have we are, or they have different pressures or whatever it might be. So I, I definitely see that both in marketing and especially in early stage startups with CEOs who think they've achieved product market fit, but they haven't, right? Because they're like, of course, this is a great product, but the customer's like, I, no, I don't, it's not worth my money. <laughs> I don't, this doesn't solve enough of my problem. So um, I think a lot of it is, it's, it takes work and we have to set aside time to do it and to, to listen and to understand. And what, what about partnering with sales? Like, cause sales has changed so much too, because the buyers typically know so much more about the organization before they're ready to buy. Um, you know, when I started out in recruiting, you know, 1998, I was, you know, smiling and dialing 60 phone calls a day. You know, I wasn't selling technology, <laughs> but same idea inside sales, just smile. People don't have phones anymore at their desk. Right. So, so how do you, yeah, I think marketing is even more strategically important to help enable sales. So what's the partnership between those two functions like now? 
Yeah, constantly, you know, it's different at every company, I, I think. But I think the most important thing is communication and sounds really like fluffy collaboration. Like, let's think about what is our go-to-market? When, when, um, how does the buyer want to buy? How can they buy? And what's the role of each of us in this process, right? So being clear about the roles, being clear about, um, the handoffs, you know, what does sales need to be effective for marketing? What does marketing need from sales to be effective, which isn't something that I think is often thought about is I think what's most important because it's a little different in every organization. Some PLG organizations, you know, a lot of this is upfront and sales is um, maybe just helping a customer consume more of a product, but there are still companies where the product isn't quite capable of being used without, you know, self in a self-serve way by a customer, There's still some that are complicated enough. And so the salesperson does become very important um, to the process. And so I think it's important to know well, what do they need to succeed <laughs> um, and how can they, I think it's good for salespeople to think about what do we know and how can we be helpful to marketing? I don't think that's a question that salespeople ask themselves that much, <laughs> but they have all this interaction with customers. Um, and so figuring out how to bubble that up and figure out what does that mean for us as a company and how we be, maybe could be more effective in winning customers and helping our customers succeed is a really important role, I think, for sales to share that knowledge with everybody else. Now, the role of a CMO is there's a lot that comes with the position, but if you had to narrow it down, like what, what are the, what's the main role of the CEO, like the main responsibilities that the person should hone in on? Yeah. You know, it, it is so multifaceted. This is one of those conversations that I have with a lot of CEOs because it's hard for them to understand marketing sometimes. Um, but, you know, I think at the highest level, right. It's about storytelling. It's about crystallizing the company story. What's its vision. What's its mission. Why should anyone care? <laughs> How are you going to bring, how are you going to bring value? And when you're talking to investors, why are you going to succeed? Like marketing needs to play a really key role in, in helping to build that story and tell that story in a way that's really effective. Um, secondly, I think the CMO needs to play a really key role in strategy, you know, really getting in and understanding the market, the company's strengths, the buyers, the competitive set, and figuring out what's our best go-to-market strategy so that across marketing, selling, and customer success, and even the product, like that's all really well aligned. You have a ex, you know, an optimized marketing and selling, selling process for the kind of product you have, for example. Um, you're thinking about channels, no channel channels, so you know where to invest. So I think that's the second thing. And then third, you know, I think CMOs have to take responsibility for revenue and customer adoption and retention, right? We, we can't say, I generated all this stuff over here. <laughs> sales isn't doing its job or that sales job. Um, you know, they need to do that. I think marketing has to consider itself accountable all the way through that, that process and taking ownership for also driving revenue. Now, if someone is on the trajectory or wish at some point in their career to be a CMO, like what advice would you give to folks on, you know, working their way towards that goal? Yes, you can get there many routes, uh, many, many routes. I think it is, regardless of what your discipline might be, whether you're coming at it from demand generation or product marketing, um, just try to keep 
broadening yourself, right? Broadening your horizons. And by that, I mean, um, be curious about other functions. Um, make sure you're pushing yourself to understand your products and get into strategic conversations, you know, because I think sometimes what happens, especially with demand gen people is people will say, well, they're great at demand gen, but I don't think they really understand our business or I can't see them as a CMO. Um, and the same can sometimes happen with product marketing where people are like, yeah, they're really all about content, but I don't think I can see them running demand gen, right? So you need to be able to um, be very curious about what other people are doing um, listen in, learn, and I think try to try to expand your the value so that you um, can demonstrate. Well, I haven't done that before, but I understand it, and here's how I would go about doing it and being effective in that. And listen, I'm going to make mistakes and learn, but I'm going to I can prove that I learn quickly. <laughs> so it's not going to be a ton of on the job um, time lost or anything like that. And I think that's really important if you can take different roles within marketing. I think that's amazing and you should try to do it if you can, for sure. Now, building a high-performing marketing team is obviously a key part of running a successful marketing function. So what advice would you give on you know, hiring marketers? Uh, probably number one is don't be afraid to hire people who are better than you are, <laughs> <laughs> you know, right? So swing for the fences, you know, get the best people you can. Um, and I, and I think one of the things, especially because I tend to work in, you know, the venture world and we're talking about companies um, that are often venture funded, it's an overused term, but you do need great athletes, as they say, like people who um, you can envision coming in to do the job you need done, but ideally who bring that level of curiosity, the ability to learn and try new things, the open-mindedness that's necessary. Because often one of the biggest challenges as a startup marketing team is people need to wear many hats and you also need to be able to swap players around occasionally, right? Because you find out you're going down a path that's not really working that well. You might need to reconfigure the team. If you've got people who are just smart, capable, adaptable, you know, you're going to be much more successful than if you have to constantly swap people out because they're extreme specialists who can only do one thing and one thing well. I think that makes it really challenging um, for sure. So I really look for those things, you know, the attitude, the aptitude they have, right? Um, and then the skills that they have. But the first two being really the most important because the one thing you know is things are going to change. <laughs> so if you have people who've got the capability of learning new things and a great attitude, you're probably, you know, 80% of where you need to be. Now you've served on lots and lots and lots of uh, boards of companies. Um, so how do you kind of get into that circle of being considered for those types of roles? It's kind of like a mystery of you know, being selected as a member of the board of directors, like how, how does that, how do you get into that fold of, of the conversation? Yeah, it sounds big, doesn't it? Like I'm on the board of directors, you know, yeah, sort absolutely. of scary. I mean, if you're in, in tech, it is, you do, you still get the jitters when you have to go present to your board every mm -hmm. quarter. Yep. <laughs> like, oh, it's the board. The board just meeting. People, I got to get... cancel all meetings because I'm preparing <laughs> for the board meeting. <laughs> so Yeah, you get nervous. Um, you know, it's funny. I, it, I guess I sort of fell into it. I found that um, 
different venture people would reach out to me about companies that they wanted to staff for. And often it was like, we're looking for a new CMO. And I might say, oh, hey, yeah, let's grab coffee. I'm really not interested in a new CMO role. And we would talk about the company and they would say, well, what do you think about being an advisor or what we're looking for someone to join the board? Like, would you be willing to do that? And so that's kind of how it started, to be honest, was just through that networking process. And then I really loved it. So then I wanted to do more of it. And um, and it really came down to that whole, the, the networking, um, declaring that you want to do it, I think, and building your skills, obviously, to be effective at it. That's something I'm, I'm still constantly working on and, and trying to expand my, you know, how do I be the best board member I can possibly be? Like, what are the things I need to learn? How can I be better? Asking for feedback of my other board members <laughs> as well. Like, how is that, you know, how am I doing? Like, can I, can I add value in new ways? But it really, it's, it's, it's a lot about networking. Fortunately, companies are doing um, more searches for board members. I definitely get a lot of calls from executive recruiters now who have board searches. And I think they're doing that because boards have always been so reliant on networking, which isn't, it's not a bad thing, except that you end up with a small circle of people you're constantly choosing from versus opening yourself to many more possibilities and many more potential candidates. So I think the big thing is you know, hone your skills, figure out what your value proposition is, and then declare you want to do it. <laughs> well, and that that's a good point of, um, you know, one of the questions I want to ask you is like, how do we get more women on board roles? Like how, how do we, can we improve those numbers? Yeah. The good news there, Keith, is it's happening in a big way. In fact, most of my um, uh, male friends always sort of say to me, well, I'm not going to get a board seat, to which I tell them that's absolutely not true. I see plenty of men still getting board seats. And of course, you're going to get a board seat. You have a lot to offer. So, you know, don't don't think that way because it's not true. Um, but there's a ton of there's a ton of stuff happening. A lot of organizations, you know, there's him for her. There's the Athena group. Uh, Mass TLC is doing things all around trying to help educate women more about what it takes to be a successful board member and then make those matching services available. Available, which is getting out of the comfort zone of, hey, we're looking for a board member. We're going to ask our five best friends, like who, who should we have on the board? So there's a lot happening there. And then personally, I definitely do a fair amount of outreach and mentoring to other women who are thinking about boards to give them, you know, my experience and what I've learned and just any advice I can that might be helpful to them as they go about trying to search for their, their own board seats. Well, and we need uh, more women in venture capital too. So I was excited when I saw that you're part of Glasswing now as a venture partner. So what were your thoughts in terms of, uh, you know, taking on this new challenge? Yeah, fantastic. Um, yeah, I met Rudina Ciceri a couple of years ago, and I've known Rick Grinnell for quite a few years. Um, so when they approached me about it, I just thought, well, it seems to fit very well with stuff that I love to do. Uh, it seems like a good way to get my toe in the water. And and I love what they do. I love the AI nature. You could tell earlier, I was like, this is going to revolutionize this is why I took jobs. I think they're doing a lot of things that are revolutionizing uh, different industries. So it just seemed like such a great fit. And you see so much happening now. Dana Grayson, who I've known for many years and used to be here at Northbridge, just started her own fund and she did just kick kicking off with a great fund and it's exciting 
to see um, the diversity growing in that field. Yeah, that was, there's definitely making making progress in the right areas, which is good to see. Yes. Are there any uh, marketers out there that you're, you're you have your eye on just because you're like, wow, that's like the next wave of of great marketers that uh, that you admire? Oh yeah. Well, a lot of a lot of people who used to work for me, I think, are great. You know, I think like <laughs> Allison McLeod is is awesome for sure. Um, and I think, you know, I, I wish I could remember some people's names. I can't remember. I have to look them up. But um, I've met a lot of people who are doing some very fascinating things with um, with data and their teams and how they're how they're getting super scientific, which I think is amazing. Uh, you know, obviously, I think Dave Gerhardt has shown us all how um, how to do the personal branding in a big way and have that benefit your company. I worked with some uh, young, interesting marketers in India as well at a company called Chargebee doing really interesting things. And I think that could be a whole new wave of marketing talent for us as well. Yeah, no, Dave's Dave's amazing. And uh, I I learn a lot from him, like, like a lot of what I do, uh, like the podcast, like the things I do on LinkedIn are from Dave, just watching what he's doing. I'm like, Oh, Dave's doing it. I need to pay attention. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I do. And I do say, and then obviously they work together, but there are a lot of CEOs who are fabulous marketers, right? I think David Cancel is a fabulous marketer. He's a great CEO too, but he just, he has that thing, right? He has that thing. Um, certainly the the folks over at uh, Dermesh and Brian at HubSpot, like they're just innate at this. You know, marketing isn't their job, they're CEO and CTO um, and founders, but they they really pay attention to that, to their brand in the, in the market. And of course, to the cultures that they're building, which I think culture and brand to me go so strongly together. So I saw uh, somewhere, I think it was uh, a profile on you and it was, uh, it said three words you try to live by open, present and growing. So, so what do you mean by that? Well, one, that's a good reminder because I don't have that on my desk anymore. And I used to have (laughs) that on my desk. Um, It was a way to remind myself to be constantly open to new ideas and different ways of looking at opportunities or challenges. um, And not closing off possibilities or doors, right? Um, You know, it was also about making sure that I'm always finding new opportunities to challenge myself, to learn something new, um, to expand my point of view and how I'm looking at things. Um, And then to, you know, to strive for personal growth in, in all things, right? How can I be a better version of myself almost every day, right? So it was just all about trying to make sure I stayed focused on that because it's very easy, especially when you're in a full-time role in a startup to just get all about the doing and the execution and making quick decisions and checking through your to-do list, which isn't really helping you be the very best person that you can be. So it was all about doing that, trying to make myself constantly better in as many ways as I could. I love that. Like I, I, I think I'm going to add that to my desk. Those three words. <laughs> I think that's a good reminder. It's, it's that's great words to live by. Uh, some rapid fire questions. So, name two companies that you're excited about, but you're not on the board or any type of attachment to the company. Yeah, so I'm, I, I am there. I have a little bit of attachment to them, but I'm very, very excited about. Yeah, I'm very excited about Chaos Search. I just 
think that they could be the next snowflake, to be honest with you. Wow. I mean, I just okay. think, I think they are an amazing um, new company that's, that's getting started and that's growing. You know, one that I'm not affiliated with, but that I am constantly admiring, because I think um, it's probably two, that I just think do the PLG thing really well. I, I remain in awe of Atlassian and Datajog. <laughs> I just mm-hmm. think, you know, I see the acquisitions that they're making. I see the continued incredible growth rates that they have. Um, and the, you know, in the SaaS world, we like to talk about the net retention rates. They're like through the roof. And I think these companies have just epitomized what this whole PLG thing is about. And I think they're amazing and they're larger. They're not startups, but I think they're, really, really cool companies. All right. Three apps that you can't live without. Calendly is one, especially, you know, now that I am on my own, it is life-saving for scheduling meetings. So I think that that, actually, that's a pretty exciting company um, as well. Yeah, they just raised, right? Oh my God. Growing like crazy. Yeah. They didn't raise for a long time. Great success story of product-led growth of just, you know, so. Yeah, didn't even want to take money is my understanding. I don't, I don't know the founder, but um, that's sort of what I've heard. So I think, I think they're really amazing. Um, I love LinkedIn. It's, it's how I keep up with people. So I do, I do love it. <laughs> I use it all the time, and I'm having a little bit of fun with. I don't know. I would have to say, oh, I don't know if I can't live without it, but um, a little bit of fun with Clubhouse. <laughs> so just kind of exploring and figuring it out. <laughs> What's your experience so far? Cause uh, like, I'll give you my point of view, but I want to hear yours first. Yeah. I'm a little mixed, you know, I've, some conversations are interesting. Some I find myself zoning out and, you know, going off and I'm seeing a lot of the same topics kind of over and over. Um, I think the other thing that I'm kind of like, mm, how do I feel about this is I do think like so many other social, uh, venues, it's become dominated by the most famous people. Right? So everyone wants to sit in on Elon Musk's talk and, um, or, uh, Andrew, you know, anything done by Andreessen Horowitz, who are also obviously investors in them, you know, Mark right. Andreessen. And so, uh, so that I'm like, yeah, so it's probably going to become another one of those things where you really have to fight to be seen. But I think it has an interesting promise in terms of conversations. Um, and, and being something where, yeah, you're not on screen and it's not being recorded and you just can have a conversation and and anybody can chime in, which I think is great. So I, I hope it can fulfill its promise, but we'll see. (laughs) What do you think? Uh, I'm not bullish on it. Like I, you know, um, I, I did get my invite and I joined and I was all excited and I had a couple of hangups. One was, I don't have the bandwidth to start to build a brand on another platform. Cause that's where I would view my value would be like, okay, now I got to have venture fizz as a thought leader here. Now I got to ha- you know, start having these discussions. We got to corral people to have these discussions when I'm like, well, why wouldn't I just do that on LinkedIn live if I'm going to do this and then people can listen into that. Right. Uh, so I struggled with that. And then too, I was just getting bombarded with notifications and I only followed a few people and I was just like, Whoa. And I, I, I deleted it because I'm like, I can't handle, or I probably could have just, you know, turned off notifications, but like this is just too much. I, I I don't have the mental bandwidth to grow another platform. Uh, I'm open to experimenting with new stuff, 
but I'm just like, I don't think my interest of the audio only is where I want to be. And I could be my words in a year and I'll be like, you know what, Carol, I was so wrong and I am so behind now and I got to build up my, my presence on clubhouse and you know, it's the best product out there. But uh, right now I'm just not, not exactly feeling it. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. The jury is out. I'm curious, you know, I want to see where it goes, but I hear you. And I, I do love audio though. I love podcasts, to be honest with you. I listen to a lot of podcasts um, because it's just something I can do when I'm working out or, you know, a bunch of other times that I just sit and listen to them. And so I get a lot out of them and I really enjoy them. So I like the audio part, but yeah, you're right. I I do struggle with like, how many of these things do we have to be on? I've already shut down some, like I'm not on Facebook. I deleted all my data. You know, some of them are just like, I just, I can't, I have other things to do. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I mean, like, like I should have a venture fizz slack channel but it was another thing where I'm like I can't I like I'm like I'm too stretched as it is never mind adding another thing that would have a lot of value and I could build a community around it so it's definitely an opportunity that I I weigh heavily but uh, yeah it's it's yep. just a challenge all right how about along the the podcast uh other than the venture for this podcast of course what other podcasts do you love to to listen to Oh yeah. So, you know, I do, I do listen to masters of scale. It's changed a little bit, but I, I like masters of scale. I like um, Shankar Vedantham's uh, hidden brain. <laughs> mm, okay. I do listen to that. Um, there's a, uh, it's a hit or miss, but I also um, listen to something called uh, money for the rest of us. Mm. It gives some, you know, it'll break down sometimes some really complicated things that you hear about in the news in a way that's much simpler to digest and understand. And so it's um, kind of common sense approaches to money and investing. And I, I kind of like that. And then, you know, sometimes I listen to um, After Hours with HBR um, or uh, sometimes on the media. Occasionally I'll delve into that. But those are some of my regular go-tos. Very cool. Yeah, I'll have to check those out because I, I do like um, different options that kind of bring it to you and kind of just bring it down to an, an easy to understand level, like morning brew for email newsletters, the skim, like it just, they, they give me my news every day. Axios, they do a great job. Like the sports email for Axios is phenomenal. I mean, how much information is in that? And it just keeps me up to speed on everything I need to know sports wise. Cause I, focus on football primarily, but I like to know what's going on with, you know, basketball, baseball and others. Uh, so yeah, there's just so many different ways to keep, you know, the right information at the right length. Uh, they, you know, these just new media companies are doing a phenomenal job. So yeah, I'm a morning brew fan. Absolutely. In fact, yeah. that's a, I listen to their podcast too sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're great. What do you like to do outside of work? Well, I, you know, I, I love to um, be outdoors as much as I can. So we're trying to get up and do skiing. You know, we try to boat in the summer. Um, I used to be an avid gardener, but now I live in the city. So I'm not doing much of that. And then, you know, hiking. So we have taken a few little trips while uh, we've been in COVID lockdown, but always going someplace where we can be outdoors most of the time, like hiking in Sedona or, (laughs) you know, uh, skiing up at Bretton Woods, that kind of stuff. So I just like to be outdoors as much as I possibly can. And then with COVID, we've taken 
into doing puzzles, if you can believe it. So, <laughs> so I think we're on our 10th puzzle or something like that. And cooking, we were uh, every Friday night for a while. We got to get back to that. We were choosing a country and cooking a meal and finding a wine or a special beverage associated with that country and kind of going to that country on Friday nights. Oh, that's super fun. That's a great idea. I love that. Very cool. Well, Carol, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your professional background, all this great advice around building companies and marketing functions. And uh, again, I could have you know talked to you for another seven straight hours about this, but uh, got to be mindful of the audience that we'll keep it around 60 minutes, but thanks so much for taking the time. Oh, my pleasure, Keith. Thank you. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.